Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land In Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State Athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with the Draft Network's senior college football writer, Benjamin Solak. Ben is one of the most respected voices in the year-round draft coverage machine, and I wanted to talk to him because he has written multiple times about the absurdity surrounding the draft stock of one Justin Fields during this offseason. Not only do we talk about how Fields will translate to the NFL and where he might eventually land, but we also discuss Sean Wade, Wyatt Davis, Trey Sermon, and all of those draft-eligible Buckeye linebackers. So, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Ben Solak. All right, Ben, for Ohio State fans, I think the first and most obvious question is, What the hell is going on with all of this stuff surrounding Justin Fields? I mean, my working theory has been that it's some combination of like the traditional draft antics of like teams trying to potentially torpedo a player so that they can have a better chance of getting him further down the draft. And then a mix of like casual racism that always kind of permeates the discussion about black quarterbacks from your perspective as somebody who does this for a living. Are, is one of those right? Are neither of them right? Are both of them right? What do you think has happened to make Justin Fields go from like one of the top quarterback prospects in a decade to somebody who, as of like 15 minutes before we started re- recording, Charlie Casserly is projecting to go 24th overall to the Steelers? Did, did Casserly really do that again? He, he absolutely did. It came out at 9.43 a.m. Oh. on Thursday. Goodness gracious. Well, I'm very glad I wasn't on Twitter because that would have <laughs> pissed me off. Yeah. Uh, Yes. So the, the, the first and the, the most important one to circle is always just Justin Fields is a black quarterback. And so there's going to be an impression that Justin Fields runs too much and it'd be an impression that Justin Fields can't process the field. It wasn't true about Lamar. It wasn't true about Deshaun. It's not true about Justin. Uh, if anything, Fields should break the pocket more and should run more. Uh, he's 230, can run a 4-4, and he tries to stick in there and get to his check down. Brother, you're your own check down. Go be a fullback. Like, you know, <laughs> this is, you can do this. Yeah. Uh, the can't read the field thing is an understandable mistake that can be made at a very cursory and, and, and top level view of fields film because fields generally does like to stare down on his reads. Like some quarterbacks, you know, uh, always go through the very fancy process of, all right, I'm going to drop back. I'm going to stare at the middle of the field safety. I'm going to pull him to the left, move to the right. Even when it doesn't really have an impact on the actual play, they go through that because that's what they've seen. That's what they practice. That's what they do. Uh, Fields, I I like to describe Fields as an arrogant quarterback. He knows he's very talented. He knows he's a very good arm. He knows his receivers are very talented. Mm -hmm. And so he often doesn't go through the, at times, just completely vestigial process of, oh, I'm going to move this thing on safety. No, he's like, I'm just going to throw it to Chris Olave 15 yards down the field. And the safety's not going to get there in time because Olave is too good and I'm too good. And so there's no reason for me to be doing this. And this is not an uncommon issue that we see in quarterbacks, especially really, really talented quarterbacks when they come out. When you're just better than everyone you're playing against, which most future first-round NFL right. picks are, you get you generate some bad habits because you can get away with it. You know what I mean? Like uh, we don't see it as much of the quarterback position because it's a different position. But for wide receivers in their route running, for defensive tackles and edges and in their uh, in their technique, we see these guys lack a little bit of polish because they've been able to just be bigger, stronger, and meaner than the other guy for so long. And Fields kind of has that that 
quarterback equivalent of that sensation. He's just bigger, stronger, faster, better thrower. And so even if he is bringing the safety to where the ball is eventually going to go, he's going to out throw the safety. Now the safety's not going to arrive there in time. So there's bad habits that he has, which are not new to NFL quarterbacks and are not prohibitive to year one NFL success. And yet for fields, we're acting like they are. Uh, we don't act like they are for Mac Jones, apparently, but we are acting like they are for Fields. So that's where we, we talk about it. this is how black quarterbacks are perceived. There's a little bit of the Ohio State quarterback sensation as well. Uh, it's always important to remember that a lot of NFL sources don't actually watch film, uh, especially guys who talk to a, like media members a lot and there go get, uh, thereby get their quotes in the media a lot. I mean, they, they're just talkers. They don't, they haven't sat down. They haven't watched the film. They haven't talked with other guys who've watched the film. They just want to gossip. That's what they want to do. Uh, and so when it comes to things like, oh, he's only got past his first read seven times this season, it's just hokum. It's just not real. It's just a, a guy who wants to see what he can get reporters to say. So he says it and sees it. They'll say it as well. Uh, and that's a dang shame, but that's the reality. So there's, there's several things that, conflate into a lot of the narratives that we've heard on fields it's it, it's there's a lot that goes on and there's a lot that sh- that we should be smarter at as, as a draft media right now that we're not uh which leads to all these narratives the good news is unlike deshaun and unlike lamar who legitimately fell there's still i think a really good chance fields just plain goes three and that will be yeah. that will be a sign that we've got at least one team who has figured out by this point that just draft really talented quarterbacks and they're going to be really talented in the league. And it's not a problem. Well, and I think we're recording on Thursday and Justin Fields had his second pro day. I don't know why he necessarily had to have two, but I guess you always have a pro day in a combine in normal years. So I guess that makes sense. Um, But the, the front office for the 49ers had their allotment of three guys uh, at the Woody Hayes facility on Wednesday. So they were in Columbus to watch mm-hmm. him on on Wednesday. So I guess that makes me a little bit more confident that after he again showed out very well like throwing against air in shorts, that um, that maybe this is a lot of smoke and the Mac Jones to San Francisco stuff might not actually happen. I know you have said it recently in articles that you expect or you think that there's a really good chance that Fields goes to three. Are you still feeling like that is... Right. Um, either a possibility or is it even becoming an eventuality for you? Yeah. So when this, when, when the trade first happened, I was like, it's, it's gotta be for fields. Maybe it's for Lance because the whole Garoppolo wait a year sort of a thing. Yeah. And then everybody was like, Hey, it's Mac Jones. And the just the, while the Niners to Mac Jones connection makes sense, the I'm going to trade multiple first round picks to get a guy who's reminiscent of the fourth round quarterback that I've made good <laughs> idea is just cognitively dissonant, right? Yeah. Uh, Shanahan's got a lot of quotes about quarterback evaluation over the years. And the one that I like to bring up in this context is he, I believe it was in 2019 uh, was talking about quarterbacks. And he said, you know, before like any, any sort of like, does he do this? Does he do that? Does he a good pocket manager? Like what's he like throwing on the move? Shanahan said at any time there's like seven elite arms just like around. And if you can find a guy with one of the seven arms, right. You can almost like think of it like, like a, like a sci-fi novel, right? Like one of the seven arms in all caps. Yeah. Like if you can find a guy with, with one of the, the seven great arms, 
you, you get him and you don't worry about anything else. Like if you can get a guy who just has the ability to throw the ball, like humans should not throw, then it doesn't matter what he's reading, processing, aggression, ball in hand, running ability, screw it. None of it matters. He's got one of the seven arms. We're going to go for that guy after that. Okay. I like these quarterbacks who do this and they manage the pocket. And if you can be accurate, I can open guys for you. Yada, 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 yada. But the fundamentally, if I can get an elite talent, I want an elite talent. So that's why to me, uh, it has always not seemed intuitive that he would trade up this many picks, this much capital to get a guy who, even if you love Mac Jones, like we all love Joe Burrow last year, his number one overall pick. Burrow was not one of the seven arms. You know, Burrow had an average NFL arm. So even if you love Mac Jones, you don't think he's one of the seven arms. Justin Fields has that argument. Since that first pro day when, and that first trade, when it was like, oh my goodness, it's Mac. Vegas has seen the odds move drastically towards even money between Fields and, and, and Mac. Uh, Fields was at plus 350, plus 250. He's at like plus 100-ish right now, so literally even money. Uh, it's becoming more clear that Vegas thinks that the, the initial Mac hype was overzealous, and there's a better chance for Fields. Uh, with that and with intuition considered, yeah, I think it's Fields at three. And you've done a lot of writing over at the Draft Network, kind of putting some of the... Um, the analytics side to look at Fields' game. You've talked about uh, earlier, just a few minutes ago, you talked about him looking beyond his first receiver, and it's not this random seven throws. You have it um, in the low 40s, which is pretty good in a shortened season when he only threw, you know, uh, I think the 225 passes. Like yep. 42 is is a pretty good percentage, especially when you've got guys like Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson who are probably going to be open more times than they're not. So it doesn't make sense to go to a second or third receiver if your number one's open. Uh, but then you've also looked at things like his accuracy and his ball placement. Yes, he's a, an incredible athlete. Yes, he's got a cannon for an arm. But in terms of like the quarterbacking part of it, not just dropping back and throwing it as far as you can. Where does he stack up in terms of those more specific quarterback traits, not just the raw athletic traits? Right. So when it comes to the like the the charting of first reads, so I have it at 42. Somebody else has it at seven. The guy who has it at seven is nuts. Uh, I have it at 42. I'm also probably wrong. Uh, charting first reads right. is very difficult, right? Yeah, like it's, it's just like Right, exactly. You, you, you have to infer a lot about how concepts are coached based off of watching the film a lot, knowing Ryan Day's background. Oh, Jeff Kelly, Urban Meyer. Um, and then seeing how Fields himself is, is executing on the field. And like I said, there's times where Fields is just staring a dude down. You know what I mean? So it, it, it can be tough to figure it out. So what I do know confidently is that I regularly see Field make the correct decision throwing the football. Uh, when Fields releases the ball, it's going to the right guy. It's going to, I have a one-on-one matchup down the field. Or I have a guy who's going to open up into a window, middle of the field open between the two safeties. I have a, a backside dig that's going to uncover into linebackers that have moved because of play action. I have an easy check down with a, a good yak opportunity. I'm going to take it. So when he releases the ball, almost invariably it's the right, uh, it's to the right target. That's why when you see his interceptions, they're not, I threw inaccurate balls. There, I'm. I threw dunderhead. I'm being tackled in the Indiana game, and I think that I can make yeah. this throw. Which, like, yeah, the guy's open, but also it's like across your body, and you're being hit by a 285 pound guy. Like, chill out. You know what I mean? Like, you, this is those are interceptions that you like to see from an evaluation process because the teaching point is, hey, don't be a moron. Like, you don't have to do that. That's not necessary. Uh, 
especially in the league, you're not going to get away with it. But you know you're not supposed to be doing that. You know what I mean? Like, you, this is not something you regularly do. You're doing it because you're pushing. If anything, the concern is that he would spiral a little bit. Uh, like the Indiana game, he throws the one bad pick, which was he just threw it right into safety's teeth. And then all of a sudden, he starts trying to hold the ball a little bit longer, take some bad sacks, throw some bad picks. Northwestern, he ends the first half with a bad interception. What does he come out and do in the second half? He tries to throw a ball late on a sprint out. And it's an interception. You know what I mean? So if anything, it's you want him to be able to take those mistakes that he does make and be able to bounce back from them mentally a little bit better. Um, but in general, the field processing, the vision and the decision making is fine. He does take bad sacks. And that's because totally. he's 6'3", 220, or excuse me, 6'3", 230, and thinks he's Ben Roethlisberger. And so, you know, like I'll never forget that Indiana blitz where they got a free safety coming at him with eight yards of steam. And the safety just hits him full force in the chest, bounces off. And Fields is like, yeah, I'm going to scramble now. And it's like, that's the worst thing that could happen to this guy. Now he's going to think he can do that all the time, right? Where it's just like, oh, yeah. I'm humongous. Nobody can tackle me. I'm never going to leave the pocket ever. And you, you, you're you, not going to experience that in the league. Like, he's still going to be one of the biggest and strongest quarterbacks in the NFL from the moment he steps in. But you're not going to be able to survive glancing contact as easily. You're not going to be able to survive blitzes as easily. You have to be more willing to move your feet in the pocket. So he does have that Carson Wentzian, Ben Roethlisbergian sensation to him where he's going to take more hits than he should. He's going to hang in the pocket for longer than he should. Uh, and that's going to, instead of getting, you know, two yard gains on checkdowns, it's going to end up being eight yard losses on sacks. That puts your defense behind the sticks. Yeah. So there's ideas of risk management and of, and of like humility, really, that I think are the biggest concerns that you have in terms uh, in Fields' game. The only other thing that's of some concern for year one projection is that Ohio State didn't run quick game very much, and he doesn't project as a good quick game passer. Quick game is all about release speed, and Fields does not have a quick process. He likes to be slow and methodical with his feet in the pocket. Uh, he doesn't like to throw from little adjusted springy platforms like you see a Zach Wilson do, right, where Wilson just little pop guns it in a quick game. Fields likes to have his, his legs, his feet tethered to the ground, uh, and, and he doesn't have that little zippy release. Both Wilson and Trevor Lawrence had that very quick three-quarters release. Fields will hit it if he needs to, but he doesn't like to use it. He'd much rather go through the full release process, and he, he doesn't have a whip release. It's a slow, methodical release. Nothing wrong with it it just makes quick game margins a little bit thinner uh with his deep accuracy considered any team that's trying to make him into a predominant quick game passer is nuts anyway but if you look at like what Kyle Shanahan's done in San Francisco for example with Jimmy Garoppolo they've been a very heavy quick game team uh with Matt Ryan in Atlanta they were not. They were more willing to throw the ball down the field. In San Francisco, they have Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel. Those receivers are all yak-oriented. So that's built for screens. That's built for shallows. It's built for quick game. Uh, in Atlanta, they had Julio. That's not so much. That's built for down the field, Mohamed Sanu. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to draft Justin Fields, they need to find a balance between, all right, we have to throw quick screens and we have to throw shallows because we need that for our receivers and – all right, this guy doesn't, he's not a good quick game quarterback right now. He didn't do it at Ohio State, doesn't have the ideal mechanics for it. We need to find a way to give him some deeper downfield targets as well. So there is a little bit of balancing that will have to occur. Not anything I anticipate being a problem, just is going to be year one bumps in the road. So let's assume that um, Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers look at Justin Fields and say, you know what, he doesn't really fit what we have in terms of our offense, and they don't draft him. How far do you think he falls? I'm assuming it's not. 24 to the Steelers like Casserly has, but where else do you think is the most likely landing spot if Fields doesn't go three overall to the Niners? 
Hmm. For Atlanta is possible. Uh, Atlanta right now is doing an extremely good job not telling anybody what they're thinking. And that's big because if Atlanta wants to trade a King's ransom for that pick for somebody else to go get fields, then they need nobody to know because there need to be a threat of them taking fields. So it's a potential. Uh, I'm not sure it's the best chance. Carolina would have been my immediate answer up until the Sam Darnold trade. I think they're still willing to take a quarterback, but I don't think they're willing to trade for him. And so I don't know just how invested they'll be. If Fields makes it to eight, then maybe he's the pick. But other than that, I'm not sure. Uh, Detroit is possible. I'm going to say Atlanta because a hometown Georgia guy, uh, they're still definitely in on the quarterback market, at least in, in a cursory sense. But Fields is, is, is a very, very talented player who also, I talk about staying in the pocket too long and taking hits. The one big thing about the Arthur Smith offense is that unlike the San Francisco offense, you know, play action, intermediate throws, like that's all similar. Unlike the San Francisco offense, which wants to roll out their quarterbacks, wants to be a quick game, wants to avoid hits. The Tennessee offense is like, yeah, you got to stay back in there and take shots in your mouth. Like that's their quarterback has to be tough because he's so in the pocket very often. And he's so uh, waiting for intermediate routes, right? That, that's the big part of their system. So fields is, toughness there becomes a little bit more of a strength, a little bit more of a necessity. So I'll say Atlanta. Um, I would expect him to be top 10 for sure. Yeah. Uh, if he's there by the end of the, uh, by like nine by 10, I think you're going to see the Patriots make a trade up or the Vikings make a trade up, but it's a lot of teams and kind of the domino, the first domino to fall is Atlanta at four. All right. That makes sense. I actually, while I, I was waiting for you to sign on to do this interview, I actually sent out a tweet about the Casserly thing saying that I think he will go in the top 10 and, or go in the top five. And if he doesn't, he won't get out of the top 10 because Belichick will go up and get him. So that's yeah. been my thought uh, uh, as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if Belichick is kind of behind some of this smoke screen, but that's another conversation for another day. So let's move on to some of the other Buckeyes in the draft. And Unfortunately, I mean, for Ohio State fans, this isn't necessarily like a lot of the drafts we've seen in recent years where there's been a glut of two, three, four, however many first round uh, potential first round draft picks. It's really just fields in this group. And then you've got some guys who could go second um, and even third round um, if, if they're lucky. But one of the ones that really interests me is Sean Wade, who if he had come out last year, almost certainly would have been a, mm-hmm. a first-round pick, if not an early second-round pick. And it's the exact opposite of what you want to see a guy coming back um, for an extra year of college when he doesn't need to, is he actually hurt his draft status. He did go through the pro day on Wednesday with Fields because um, he was still recuperating from an injury during the first pro day. What are your thoughts on Sean Wade, and how much did he potentially hurt himself by coming back this past year and moving from slot corner to an outside corner. Uh, he lost some money. Uh, he probably went from day yeah. one to day three. So that's yeah. about as, as, right, as rough as you can get. Now, what's true about Sean Wade, what was true about Sean Wade then, a good slot corner at the college level, is true about Sean Wade now. Uh, when he plays slot corner, it looks pretty good. The slot corner position usually starts getting drafted at the earliest in round two and typically when you draft a guy who you expect to be a slot in round two one of the things that you like is being able to tell yourself and convince yourself and this would have been the case with sean wade had he come out last year hey he maybe can play outside for us if we need him to you know if we're going to play cover two <laughs> yeah. zone he can maybe play outside or maybe he's big enough or whatever can't really do that with sean wade now no, no, uh, you can't. 
you can you can try and say all right he had a uh a, a abbreviated offseason and ohio state was very static in their coverages we're going to be a lot more multiple we're going to play a lot more zone we could get away with this and they, like, i think that, again that's fine like athletically he tested like somebody who should be able to play outside with his height with his movement skills um but there's no erasing what we saw which was a player who was afraid of one-on-one coverage on the outside right like Cornell Powell had this yeah. boy's number. Cornell Powell wasn't taking snaps last year. So it, it, it's it, it's a much more difficult thing to convince yourself of as opposed to like Elijah Molden out of Washington or Aaron Robinson out of UCF where you haven't really seen it ever. So you can be like, yeah, yeah, yeah this, this can happen. You know what I mean? And, th- and that allows you to, to draft him a little earlier and kind of like mentally pass that off in your head. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so he lost some money. He doesn't have that anymore. There's going to be teams that view him as a a nickel to safety player. And that sort of a player doesn't get drafted until day three because hybrid players are tough. And usually you're you're drafting them purely on athleticism. Uh, If he gets to a smart DC, I think he'll be in a good spot because he clearly has good developmental traits. But that's going to be a round four pick, in my opinion. So it's unfortunate for Wade uh, that, you know, he was going to opt out and then he came back. I loved what I saw from him in 2019. Uh, I would want my team to draft him. I would just want them to do it at the dart throw stage of the draft, not at the stage of the draft where you really need to hit on your picks. Yeah. Um, Let's run through some of these other guys for the Buckeyes who are hoping to be drafted uh, sometime in the first half uh, of the draft. We have Wyatt Davis, who um, really came on as, as one of the best offensive linemen uh, in the country this past year or two. Um, what are your thoughts on him and where he might end up uh, falling in the draft? Yeah, Wyatt also had a better season two years ago than last year, which yeah. is honestly, it, it's a helpful talking point to kind of Sean Wade's struggles. Uh, I, I think a few Ohio State prospects, Josh Myers included, were just simply better in 2019 and just kind of struggled to put out the same caliber of film, which sounds very dumb to say about a team that made it to the national championship game after missing out last year. But uh, th- there were some lumps. And so why Davis was projecting maybe a first round pick. I think he's now viewed a little bit more as a scheme specific player. He's now viewed a little bit more as a guy you want in gap power, a guy you want playing uphill. Pass protection was not the strongest for him. Ohio State had pretty simple protection calls this this past year. And so Davis would get tasked with chasing these quick little nose tackles, these quick little blitzing linebackers all the way through gaps. You know, they'd be straight, going straight big on big, man on man protection, even against stunts, games, and twists. And Davis doesn't, really have, doesn't necessarily have the foot quickness for that. So a little bit of an unfair ask. Uh, I think Wyatt Davis will be one of the first five interior offensive linemen off the board. Uh, but you're going to see Quinn Miners go first. You're going to see Landon Dickerson and Creed Humphrey go first. Uh, and I think that Davis maybe at four or five starts to get that conversation. He's a, a Baltimore Las Vegas scheme fit. So round two is definitely on the table. Uh, I would guess, yeah, like top 75, top 80 picks is it for Wyatt. Now, Ohio State has basically their entire linebacking core from last year in, yeah. in the draft this year, which, to be honest, I don't think is going to upset a lot of Ohio State fans who was more than happy to see most of those guys go. But you've got Pete Werner, Baron Browning, Tuff Borland, and uh, Justin Hilliard. Obviously a huge range in terms of where those guys are projected. But if you had to look at um, those four guys – I think two of them stand at the top and actually have a chance to have decent NFL careers. But of those four, who do you think has the best opportunity to land and then eventually stick with an NFL team? I uh, I didn't realize Ohio State fans weren't a fan of that that group. That's stop, interesting. Stop. I know you're lying. I know you're making that up. They, okay. Yeah. 
I know that <laughs> I, I, I 100% am there with, I would not want to see tough Portland on the field. Thank you. Uh, Baron Browning as well can be frustrating at times. I'm a big Pete Werner guy. Do we not like Pete? I think he grew on folks. I think a lot of people thought he was like tough Borland 2.0, but I think over this right. past year or two, um, he showed his athleticism and ended up being a guy who um, was a lot more athletic and capable than people realized, especially in his first year as a starter. Yeah. that And that, right. That's the, that's the big thing is like you go in expecting to see, you know, Ohio State thumper linebacker Pete Werner, right? The name doesn't sound athletic. The <laughs> aesthetic isn't athletic in general. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then he can really move. So I think, right, maybe he's a little bit more surprising from an evaluation perspective than he was like fun. But right, Pete Werner and Baron Browning are the two who are expected to be drafted semi early. Uh, Werner's got good coverage ability for a linebacker, is a potential three down player, uh, tested really, really well. Baron Browning also tested very well. Uh, obviously, Browning has had a a career trying to find a role and never really exactly did. And he gets benched in the natty and it's like, all right, uh, what exactly is this guy? And the league says, we don't care. He's super long. He's super fast. He's super big. We're going to figure it out. Ohio state never could, but we can, which is always wrong, but it's the thing the league likes to believe. Uh, so Browning and Werner are going to be day two picks. Uh, there are people who are really, really big on Baron Browning. I wouldn't be super surprised to see Browning as like a top 40, top 50 pick because some team is just super in on him. Warner's probably more so in the wide Davis range, top 75. Uh, I don't think tough gets drafted. No. Appreciate everything tough's done for the program, but also, you know, just the Devontae Smith clip will live in infamy forever. I mean, that's, uh, and a, then, that's on the defensive coordinator too. Why is tough Borland yes. guarding the Heisman trophy wide receiver? But that's, that's why I say like, yeah, uh, Kerry Coons with some static, uh, static defenses. Uh, Alabama kind of was like, Oh, if you're going to run cover one, cover three forever. Yeah. Uh, we have a few plays that beat cover one, cover three. Let's, let's, let's run those and see what happens. Ugh. Um, and then Justin Hilliard, who the book on Hilliard was, Oh, injuries kept him off the field and everything, but he's a good athlete. And, 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 you know, when he's out there, he makes plays. And they didn't test great, uh, which I don't know if it's is, is he was struggling to train and, and, you know, continue to be banged up or whatever it was. Uh, but his bench scores were nuts and everything else was average. Uh, and so Hilliard, I don't think now is anything more than maybe a late day three pick. This is a guy who couldn't break his college rotation, couldn't hold down a starting job, dealt with injury concerns and doesn't have the premier athleticism of a Warner or a Browning. So if selected round seven. Yeah, I, I think that's all very fair. And I think it'll be interesting to see what Browning is able to accomplish. Another guy who dealt with a lot of injuries throughout his career, but when he was on the field, man, he looked, he looked great. And Werner, like you kind of talked about athletically, he more or less played a hybrid linebacker safety role for Ohio State the last, well, maybe not in 2020 as much, but in 2019, he really did. And that right. opened up a lot of eyes. So real quick, just I, I want to talk about one more player before I let you out of here. Um, Trey Sermon was average at best um, for Ohio State for the majority of his one season in Columbus. Mm-hmm. Right? And then all of a sudden he turned into Eddie George. So I don't know if that is getting used to the new surroundings, getting used to the new scheme, um, finally feeling comfortable. But in his last few games, he was unstoppable. And then, of course, he gets hurt on the first play of the national championship game. Now that he is at least semi-healthy, he looked pretty decent in the pro day. What are the thoughts on where he fits in the running back pecking order, especially understanding that running backs don't get drafted super high anymore? Yeah, it it is a weird career arc for Trey Sermon. Uh, For his entire Oklahoma career, I, at least in the draft space, I was like, we're all going nuts over this guy. I just don't get it. This is too much. We all got to chill out. And then you went to Ohio State and it's like, all right, 
you know, this is a good opportunity for him. Kind of get your head screwed on straight. You a year of production, good offense, going to be great. And he just apparently was not conditioned at all. Like he just was not ready for reps. He just wasn't at, at game weight. And it's like, man, like talented, but he's never just been able to consistently hold down a role. Like yeah. darn that, That's, that's disappointing. And then right. Northwestern second half happens. You're like, Holy Moses. Who is this kid? Uh, this is awesome. This is exactly what we've been wanting to see for years. And that was great. And the Clemson game was awesome. And then you're like, all right, if he can do this against Alabama, like that's like three games, it's not enough for a full eval. It's still going to be gaps in the evaluation, but if they're going to beat Alabama. It's going to be because Trey Sermon was really, they, they were able to run the ball and they're able to hold on to the football and, and, and play that sort of a game. Right. And then he gets banged up and you're like, this is, this is the thing with Trey. It's like, there's always in ways in which, you know, he ends up not getting out on the field for whatever reason. Uh, size is great. Testing was great. You put on the best 15 plays and you've got yourself an NFL caliber running back who can do some damage in a system, in a blocking scheme, wide zone approach that is becoming more and more prevalent in the league. I think he'll be a top five back off the board. It's going to be Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, and Javante Williams. Behind that, you're going to have Michael Carter, Williams' uh, teammate at UNC, Kenny Gainwell out of Memphis, Trey Sermon out of Ohio State. Those are going to be your next three in the conversation. So he's, got, he's a fringe top five back. Uh, late day two is possible. The difficulty is, right, how much are you going to be able to trust him? How much are you going to be able to do with him uh, uh, in terms of, of three-down usage and how many carries can he take? What's his weight going to be like? So on and so forth. So Sermon is a very volatile prospect, and, and, and a team will probably take a swing and really hope to, to hit on it. I'm not sure that they will, um, but you, it's very difficult to, in the same way, like to erase the Devontae Smith rep, rep from Tough Borland's eval. When we when we saw peak sermon, he was record setting among college running backs. Uh, and so that's also difficult to erase for teams. That guy has that potential. And NFL coaches and execs always say to themselves, well, nobody else has been able to get the potential out of this guy, but I can. Uh, and again, that's usually not true, but uh, it's an easy thing to talk yourself into. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land In Conversation. Also, thanks, of course, to Ben. We will have links to his social media and where you can read his stuff in the show notes and on LandGrantHolyLand.com. But you should follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's at Benjamin, S-O-L-A-K. If you are finding this episode on the aforementioned LandGrantHolyLand.com, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are kicking off a huge new slate of shows beginning May 3rd with some different voices and focuses that you cannot hear anywhere else in the Buckeye podcasting universe, so you do not want to miss out on that. Also, don't forget to follow LandGrantHolyLand on Twitter at LandGrant33. You can find me at BWWMatt. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. And as always, go Bucks.